Welcome to SMC's podcast series, SMC Critical Insights. Today, we're talking about a flurry of recent developments at the U.S. antitrust agencies and the potential implications for companies engaged in M&A activity or who may otherwise be subject to antitrust scrutiny. I'm Sophie Vandergrift. I came to SMC as a counsel in the litigation group from the FTC's Bureau of Competition, where I spent years conducting merger investigations and litigations. Here with me today is my colleague, Renata Hesse, who co-heads SMC's antitrust group. Renata came to the firm following a distinguished career in government, including leading the antitrust division at the Department of Justice twice as acting assistant attorney general and serving that division for more than 15 years. Renata, President Biden is five months into his presidency and he has so far filled only one of the top competition posts when the Senate on June 15th confirmed Professor Lena Khan to the Federal Trade Commission and President Biden subsequently appointed her to the chairmanship. Meanwhile, the Assistant Attorney General role sits vacant with only acting leadership in place at the antitrust division. Chair Khan is well known for her criticisms of big tech and is expected to adopt an aggressive, progressive enforcement agenda, which we saw the beginnings of this past week. Broadly speaking, what does Khan's confirmation and assumption of the chair role mean for antitrust enforcement? Thanks, Sophie. So Chair Khan is a former Columbia law professor. She also worked on the Hill and was a House antitrust subcommittee staffer who was closely involved in authoring the House Minority Report on Competition and Digital Markets that was very critical of the so-called dominant tech platforms, Facebook, Amazon, Apple, and Google. She also held a role briefly at the FTC as an advisor to outgoing Democratic Commissioner uh, Rohit Chopra, with whom she is closely aligned ideologically and in terms of agenda. You know, I think the interesting thing about her appointment as chair is that we really don't know very much about what she's going to do. We know about her views on big tech and on so-called monopolization investigations and enforcement. We don't really know anything about what she thinks about merger enforcement, other than that she seems to be aligned with the view that the agencies have been too permissive in terms of approving mergers. I think we're going to talk about this in a little bit, but she started off her time as chair with a bang, with an open meeting where there were some you know, suggestions of what is to come in terms of enforcement. But I think one thing we can be sure of is that transactions and conduct, particularly in the tech area, but I suspect also in other spaces, are going to get a much harder look. They're going to take longer. And I think we're going to see some exploration of new theories of harm and potentially new investigative tools. Okay, turning now to your former agency, Renata, the Antitrust Division, can you give us some thoughts or insights as to why it's taking so long for the administration to appoint an AAG? And in the meantime, what does the absence of a permanent AAG mean for enforcement at the DOJ? We're now looking at the longest time a modern president has taken to nominate an AAG for antitrust. And that's a fact that's at odds with the great public interest in congressional attention towards antitrust reform and enforcement at this particular moment in time. At the same time, um, 
it's not entirely surprising that an appointee has yet to be named when you consider that progressives and moderates are in a struggle to set the leadership and thus the agenda for the next area of antitrust law. I do think part of what you're seeing is that there are legislative priorities that the president has that are very, very important. The control of Congress is very, very slim on the Democratic side. And antitrust is just one piece of that puzzle. And in reality, although we all like to think it's a big piece, it's actually probably a pretty small piece in the president's overall agenda in terms of getting the country back up and running in post-pandemic. So I think we'll see some movement on this. I thought we would see it by the end of June. I thought we'd see it by the end of July. I don't think it's likely we'll have an actual confirmed head in the agency until well into the fall at this point, and maybe even in the winter. So for the agency itself, not having a head, you know, has some consequences, but generally the career staff are very good at keeping things moving. There is a political appointee, Jean Kimmelman, who's up in the associate's office, and the antitrust division reports up to the associate's office. So I think Jean is keeping an eye on things, making sure that, you know, nothing is getting missed, that they, the division continues to work on the things that it needs to work on. You know, there's a sense of not knowing what the priorities are that can be a little bit hard on the staff. And I think it's it would be obviously much better to have a head, but the division actually seems to be functioning reasonably well. I wouldn't expect to see big controversial changes there until we get an actual confirmed AAG in. But I think work is continuing and it's pretty much business as usual. So be turning back to FTC, there's been a number of important developments. I think I previewed this since Chair Khan assumed her role just a few weeks ago. Can you tell us what's going on over at the FTC? Chair Khan is moving quickly to advance her enforcement agenda and bring commission policy guidance in line with her own vision. One of her first actions as chair, as you mentioned earlier, was to announce a series of monthly commission meetings that will be open to the public. The first meeting in the series was held on July 1st and took up a number of important policy issues that will have potentially huge repercussions for enforcement, I think. At that meeting, Chair Khan put to a vote a resolution that is essentially an omnibus compulsory process resolution that provides ongoing authority for a single commissioner to approve the use of compulsory process in certain investigations. And previously, a majority vote of the commission was required in order to give staff compulsory process, e.g. second requests. So given that Commissioner Chopra may depart the commission in the near term to assume his role at the helm of the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, and his departure would leave the commission in a 2-2 split between the Democrats and Republicans, this resolution would essentially allow the Democratic commissioners, and it would uh, be the case that you'd be waiting for a third Democrat to be confirmed um, before you could avoid a kind of 2-2 split scenario that would block the, the Democrats' ability to issue compulsory process. And the implications of this resolution will be, I think, more second requests and perhaps including in transactions that wouldn't have traditionally attracted a full phase investigation. And the issuance of more second requests, particularly if um, driven by searching or novel theories of harm, could in turn, I think, ultimately strain commission resources. 
So I think we'll see that merging parties who receive a second request in kind of novel scenarios will have a strong incentive to comply quickly, perhaps reject timing agreements and test the commission's ability to bring a complaint in that context. So it could be a very interesting time coming up. Well, and Sophie, actually, that particular change does presage the possibility that Commissioner Chopra will, in fact, be confirmed as the head of the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, and that we could go back to a 2-2 commission. And it sounds like part of what they don't want is to see that same thing that happened with the 7-Eleven marathon transaction, where they ended up not being able to vote without a complaint with a consent decree, right? Yeah, absolutely. So, Renata, another important development at the July meeting was the commission's vote to rescind the commission's 2015 statement of enforcement principles regarding Section 5 of the FTC Act. Can you fill us in on that issue? Sure. So, the rescinded policy statement described the commission's application of its statutory authority to take action against, quote, unfair methods of competition prohibited by Section 5 of the FTC Act but not necessarily by the Sherman Act or the Clayton Act. So one of the interesting things about the FTC authority is that they can apply both the Sherman Act and the Clayton Act, but also the FTC Act, which obviously the antitrust division can't. And that's part of what gives them their authority in the consumer protection space as opposed to the competition space. But the FTC Act, Section 5 of the FTC Act, has a somewhat notoriously vague description of what is a violation of Section 5. And for a a long, long time, I think there was a statement issued by Chairman Potofsky about this very issue. People have basically said, we're going to align Section 5 standards to Sherman Act and Clayton Act standards, at least in the context of competition law enforcement, in order to basically give some framing around what Section 5 of the FTC Act uh, means. And so the statement that was issued in 2015 was another version of doing this same thing. The now dead statement was passed in 2015 during the Obama administration in a four to one bipartisan, but Chair Khan opposed the statement based on her view that it, quote, doubled down on the FTC's, quote, longstanding failure, end quote, to go after Section 5 violations that amount to unfair methods of competition a breed of antitrust violations, she argues, Congress explicitly meant to go beyond the Sherman Act when it created the Commission's Section 5 authority. There's obviously dispute and debate around that very issue, as some of the uh, Republican commissioners made very clear in, in the open meeting, but so we'll, we'll just have to see how that sorts itself over time. But, you know, Chair Khan has been clear that a key piece of her agenda involves restoring the agency to this, quote-unquote, critical mission. The Commission's rescission of the 2015 statement is a first step in Chair Khan's push to deploy the Commission's Section 5 authority in a broader and more aggressive fashion to capture conduct that may have previously been regarded as falling outside the agency's purview. We really don't know yet, as a practical matter, how Chair Khan will reshape the policy around Section 5 and how the courts will respond to that, though we do know that doing that is an important part of her agenda. It's also worth noting that the July 1 open meeting where this was announced and the other change that Sophie uh, started was also discussed, 
put on display a highly divided and partisan commission that seems unlikely to do much by consensus in the next few years, which is actually pretty unusual for the FTC. It's not unheard of, but it's pretty unusual. It's usually operated in a fairly functional bipartisan way. Each of the resolutions voted on during the meeting split three to two on partisan lines with Republican commissioners Wilson and Phillips expressing serious consternation about the absence of public comment periods associated with the resolutions and the brief time, just a few days, that they themselves had to consider and debate the chair's proposed resolution, which do mark significant policy departures. As an aside, I suspect that this will be the subject of some litigation by someone, probably, about the notice and comment period and how that was all done. But we'll, again, we'll see how that plays out. One important policy change that we anticipate, but that hasn't materialized yet, has to do with the vertical merger guidelines that the FTC and the Antitrust Division published jointly just a year ago in June of 2020 to provide guidance about the agency's analytical approach to a broad range of non-horizontal transactions. And these are transactions involving firms that participate at different levels of the supply chain. Recall that the FTC's vote to issue the 2020 vertical merger guidelines was split two to three along party lines with Democratic commissioners Slaughter and Chopra voting against and issuing dissenting statements critiquing the guidelines as incomplete and overly permissive. Sophie, if CHAIRCOM were to rescind the 2020 vertical merger guidelines, what do you think that would mean to vertical merger enforcement? Yeah, so first, rescinding the 2020 vertical guidelines without replacing them with substitute guidance would inherently create uncertainty in the market, with merging firms once again kind of lacking clarity about how the agencies would likely assess any vertical or diagonal transactions and thus creating uncertainty around the regulatory risk profile associated with such transactions. Though I think it would be safe to assume that under Chair Khan's commission, non-horizontal transactions will most definitely face heightened scrutiny relative to the review they would have received previously. We don't know, of course, what kind of process and stakeholder engagement Chair Khan might undertake before formulating revised vertical merger guidelines if she does, in fact, pursue that route. And presumably, FTC and DOJ leadership would work together to align on revised guidelines. Part of the uncertainty around this issue right now is that we don't know who the DOJ leadership would be, and so what's hard to forecast what their input or influence would be on, on revised guidelines. But in the case of the 2020 guidelines, there was extensive workshopping, collaboration, and a comment process that altogether took nearly two years. So if Chair Khan and DOJ leadership were to undertake a similar collaborative process to promulgate new guidelines, it could be the case that there is really an extended period of uncertainty here. Substantive changes that Chair Khan might promote if she were to publish revised vertical guidelines could include a more skeptical approach towards claims about elimination of double marginalization and a variety of anti-competitive presumptions, such as perhaps a dominant platform presumption or, or things of that nature. Finally, I'll also note the likelihood that Chair Khan will work to reshape the FTC's perspective or ongoing litigation theories 
particularly in industries of particular interest to her, such as tech. For example, we may see Chair Khan take a hands-on role in reshaping a forthcoming amended complaint against Facebook. But the extent to which she'll play a role in any investigations of Amazon is up for debate at the moment, as Amazon recently filed a motion seeking Chair Khan's recusal from antitrust investigations of the company. Amazon cited her track record of commentary about Amazon's violation of the antitrust laws as evidence that she could not consider the company's positions with an open mind. Okay, Renata, we're running short on time, but could you quickly recap for us the recent legislative activity on the Hill? Uh, do any of the proposed antitrust reform bills appear likely to pass in the near term? Thanks, Sophie. So this is obviously a crystal ball gazing exercise. Uh, I mean, I thought, I did think it was interesting. The Wall Street Journal had an editorial, basically, it sounded to me like a, or read to me like a kind of knock, knock on, on your head, Republicans in Congress, about what's going on. You're cooperating because you're concerned about tech companies potentially having, putting limits on conservative speech, but there's a much bigger picture here and you should be careful what you're voting for. We'll see if that means that what we all assumed, which was that there would be some bipartisan support for legislation, at least for giving the agencies more funding and potentially around proposals relating to big tech. We'll see whether or not the events of the open meeting and the traditional conservative press's reaction to that. Uh, the Chamber of Commerce also issued something questioning what happened in that open meeting, whether that enliven some of the Republicans on the Hill to maybe uh, stop lending support for these reforms. But we really don't know. This is a kind of an open question. I mean, we have seen bipartisan majorities on the House Judiciary Committee advance a suite of six antitrust bills, which among many other things would bulk up the antitrust agencies and aim to discipline large online platforms among other things, limiting their ability to engage in M&A activity, creating interoperability requirements, and prohibiting self-preferencing behavior. But we'll just have to see what happens. I mean, I think in the absence of legislation, honestly, the agenda, although it will um, delay transactions and it could potentially create large, expensive investigations, whether or not it's successful will really depend on the reception that it gets in the courts and how well these cases are prepared and then potentially litigated. And given that we've had a number of judges appointed by President Trump, I think the judiciary is actually going to be fairly conservative on many of these issues. And the judiciary, as people sometimes forget, is a key component uh, to the advancement of enforcement theories and remedies in our system, which requires the agencies to, at least to seek an injunction, the FTC has to get go to district court and the antitrust division has to always go to district court. So it'll be interesting to see what happens, but I think the FTC is kind of out of the gate very fast. DOJ is lagging behind a little bit in terms of telling us what, uh, what we have in store for us. But ultimately, I think this is a little bit of a longer game and we're not gonna really know how much change there's going to be for another couple of years, probably, as I think companies decide that they're going to litigate some of these cases and matters and, and the courts put their imprint on it. I mean, we just had a, a Obama appointee judge just agree with Facebook's motion to dismiss 
the FTC's complaint. So that I think is a little bit of a presage of what we may see as we move along here. With that, I will thank you, Sophie, for joining me for this discussion and sharing your insights. And thanks to our listeners for joining us for SNC Critical Insights. For more information on our practice, please visit us on the web at www.solcrom.com. Thank you.